Welcome to the Governance Podcast from the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society. My name is Mark Pennington, the Director of the Centre and also the Head of the Department of Political Economy in which the Centre is housed. Today we have with us Professor Sheila Ogilvy. Sheila is Professor of Economic History at Cambridge University and the author of several important books on history and political economy, including State Corporativism and Proto-Industry, Bitter Living and Institutions and European Trade. Sheila has a new book out, The European Guilds and Economic Analysis, uh, which we're going to be discussing in the context of her broader body of work. So, Sheila, it's great to have with you, have you with us here today at the centre. Pleasure um, to be here. Thank you. Um, we're going to be hosting a book launch later in the day on this new volume on the European Economic Guilds. This is the latest in a number of publications that you've produced on the role of guilds. I wonder whether you could start the conversation by giving us a brief statement of why you've actually decided to bring together your work in a volume of this kind. Well, um, several decades ago, when I was a graduate student, I was doing my PhD work on a remote valley in the Black Forest of Württemberg in southwest Germany, and I didn't really know what I was going to do research on, and I came across a series of annual guild account books for a rural guild in this valley, which um, organized these rural and small town proto-industrial weavers. So they were worsted weavers, they were weaving for export markets. According to prevailing theories at the time, they weren't supposed to have guilds. And nonetheless, I stumbled across these little booklets which recorded for 165 years what these guilds did in detail every year. No one had looked at these booklets since they had first been written, so the sand that had been used to dry the ink was still stuck to the handwriting when I oh, opened wow. these, these <laughs> documents. So I immediately saw that I had a great PhD dissertation, and I wrote it not just about the activities of this guild, but how all of the institutions worked in this um, stagnating society in which nonetheless ordinary people were very entrepreneurial, very market-oriented, but there were these institutions that kind of imposed a glass wall around what they could do. And so that was a few decades ago. And ever since then, I found I was coming back again and again to these institutions which exist over very long periods and have what appear to be quite harmful effects for many people, including another interest of mine was the economic position of women, female entrepreneurship, ordinary people sort of trying to fight their way out of poverty. And I, I kept asking the question, what, how is it possible for institutions that harm so many people to exist so widely, to exist for centuries? Is there some way that we can use history and economics to explain the survival of these institutions and ultimately why they break down because in the 19th century, in 1862, finally these guilds were abolished in this part of Germany, a long time after they were abolished in other parts mm -hmm. of Europe. So um, that was a big question that kept on recurring. I kept asking it not just to do with guilds, but to do with serfdom, which I and I, I, I did a, a, a certain amount of work on the, the economic history of serfdom in Eastern Europe. Uh, why do village communities have both a, 
a, a dark side and a bright side, various traditional institutions. Why do they exist for so long? Uh, what effects do they have? Why do they finally break down? So guilds fit into this wider intellectual agenda for me. Okay, that's great. Um, so could you say a little bit about how you would define what you mean by a guild? Obviously, this is a, a very specific type of institution that existed, and as you say, for very long periods. But what were the key features of an, of an organisation for, for it to be called a guild in your understanding of that term? So that's a really good question, because I think nowadays, when we say the word guild, we tend to think of something kind of cuddly, something craft-like, you know, we have quilting guilds and knitting yeah. guilds and artists' guilds, and, you know, I get called up by artists sort of websites saying we want to set up a guild here in London tell us something about the history of guilds so I think nowadays we think it has to do with art and craftsmanship and community but the these institutions or these organizations that that uh, were called guilds for so long um, were occupational associations um, they mainly existed in the secondary and tertiary sectors so you have uh, craft guilds, which covered, if you like, industrial occupations, um, but also a lot of service sector occupations. So you have uh, shopkeepers guilds, you have chimney sweeps guilds, you have florists guilds, um, you have all sorts of service sector, you know, you even, you also, in fact, have some primary sector guilds. So there are guilds of fishermen and day laborers and gardeners and, and sailors and so on. So they're occupational associations. And analytically, as far as economists are concerned, or economic historians are concerned, there are two main types of occupational guild. One are guilds of long distance merchants. Um, wholesale merchants. So they're not selling directly to consumers. Mm. They're, they're engaged professionally in long-distance trade. And as they are supposed to have um, had certain benefits as well as certain costs for the growth of long-distance trade during the commercial revolution in, in Europe from the 11th century onwards. And in 2011, I wrote a book called Institutions and European Trade, where I looked at the effect of those guilds of long-distance merchants. But I, there was still this much larger group of what I call craft guilds, which really weren't just for crafts, but also for service sector occupations that directly sold to customers, and even primary sector occupations that directly sold to customers. So this new book, The European Guilds, that it just came out a couple of months ago, is about those guilds, those locally oriented guilds that are that I think one can summarize by saying they're craft guilds. So what a guild was, was it was an association of all the producers of certain goods and services in a particular geographical area. So typically a town, although they often try to include the suburbs of the town or the rural hinterland. And you do, especially in um, Central Europe and Southern Europe, you actually get regional guilds that combine the rural and urban producers in a particular region. Um, so they're not all completely urban, but typically it would be a town and its hinterland. And the guild had the exclusive right for its members to engage in certain economic activities. And then it had the exclusive right to decide who could become a member of the guild. Mm -hmm. And then a further set of legal privileges it had, usually from the local authorities, 
um, was to regulate the business activities of its members and often to regulate the activities of people outside the guild in the markets in what it produced and the inputs it used to produce it. So it had certain wider um, capacities to, to regulate the adjacent markets. Mm -hmm. So with those four privileges, a guild basically sought to control its own occupation and the markets involving it in such a way as to um, serve the best interests of its members. Okay. Well, that's leading me on to the, to, to the next question, really. So the, the title of the book is The European Guilds and Economic Analysis. Um, economists often disagree about things. And one of the questions that they disagree about is really relating to the efficiency properties of these guilds. So there are some economists who would argue that these guilds performed an important function. Uh, that was the efficiency enhancing that might have been necessary for, for growth in certain circumstances. I know that's not a view that you hold, but could you give us an indication of what those arguments are that are put forward to suggest that these might be efficient institutions? Why do some economists believe that the guilds were efficient? So this view uh, that guilds might have actually been efficient institutions is actually a specific manifestation of a wider and extremely beneficial development that really started in economics in the 60s and 70s, which involved trying not just to accept institutions as a given, that economists just had to say, well, they come out of somewhere and other social sciences explain them, but to try to apply economic analysis to explain why institutions such as the state and the market and voluntary organizations and all sorts of other institutions, maybe as economists, we could explain why these institutions exist. And then our analytical framework would be so much more powerful rather than simply accepting these exogenous things that come out and, you know, relying on other social sciences. So it was a, maybe a bit of economic imperialism. And the first attempt or the first attempts to explain institutions in economic terms were these efficiency theories. So the idea was if something exists very widely for a very long period, there must be some economic problem it was solving. Otherwise people would change it. Yeah, otherwise yeah. people would change it. Otherwise it would like spontaneously break down yeah. or it would, you know, it, there would be some reason why we would move to a better set of institutions. And in a way, maybe these efficiency theories reflected the optimism of the 1960s, the idea that, you know, everything is for the best and the best of all possible worlds, mm -hmm. a sort of, you know, enlightenment, high growth era. And it was, I think, that the view that maybe craft guilds or guilds in general are efficient grew out of this wider tendency to try to explain everything in terms of, you know, the simplest propositions in economics. And there were three reasons why it was thought, well, you know, maybe these guilds, even though they looked as if they might be doing some bad things, actually their benefits outweighed their costs. And there were three sets of benefits that guilds were thought possibly to have created. One of them was um, to do with uh, the quality of goods and services. So the idea is that there's an in 
the potential for an information asymmetry between producers and consumers. So I know much more about the quality of the economics and economic history services I'm creating than my students do. And so I can actually defraud them by, by giving them something that isn't very high quality. Yep. And there's something about the certification that I get by if I had a guild um, that enables them to trust that if they come to the University of Cambridge, they'll be getting you know proper economic history services. So the idea is that if you have too much of an information asymmetry between producers and consumers, the whole market will Great collapse. Yeah, okay. yeah. So yeah. that's the first thing that it was thought maybe guilds did. The second was kind of related, which was that it was thought that perhaps guilds were necessary to make sure that producers engaged in the right amount of training. So it was thought maybe there are imperfections in markets for what economists call mm -hmm. human capital investment, so investing yep. in your own capacities. Maybe people wouldn't do enough of it. Maybe when if they tried to do it, there might be some sort of opportunistic behavior between um, trainers and trainees, which would cause the training relationship to break down. And maybe guilds were necessary to regulate that training relationship to make sure it worked. So that was the second reason. Yep. And the third thing and I think this was uh, this was um, the maybe a slightly more challenging thing for efficiency theories of guilds to do was to try to make sense of the relationship between guilds and innovation, because we know that innovation is really important for economic growth, and we also know that guilds often tried to oppose innovations that threatened their members' market power. And so, it, you know, any efficiency theory of guilds has to kind of grapple with that. And the idea was, well, yes, occasionally you see guilds opposing innovations, but actually they are doing a bunch of other things which the efficiency theories argued were good for innovation. So they so might unbalance, unbalance yeah. the benefits outweigh yeah. the costs. So they might have uh, disseminated knowledge through their training systems. They might have created knowledge clusters in some way. They might have, because they often required journeymen to go out traveling, maybe they disseminated knowledge that way. So there was a sort of idea that, you know, unintentionally, guilds might be doing things that were good for innovation, even if on the face of it, it looked as if they were doing things that were bad. So that was the those were the efficiency theories. So would, would it be fair to say these are basically arguments which are suggesting that there was some kind of, or there's some kind of market failures that, it, that arise in certain situations, you then have an institutional response to address the market failure. And in this instance, the guild is seen as the institutional mechanism to solve the market failure. Yeah, exactly. So if you've got a market failure, then in principle, an institution other than yeah. a market can do better. Yeah. And the idea is, well, you know, in the past, there, you know, you don't really have, it was thought, you know, public institutions, sort yeah. of generalized universal yeah. institutions. So you had to rely on these professional associations to do it because you needed something to solve the market failure. Um, yeah. And this was kind of the basis for the efficiency theories. And it's only really, I think, in the last 10 years or so that economists have begun to move on from efficiency theories mm -hmm. and to recognize that you can still remain within economics, mm -hmm. but explain inefficient institutions. Inefficient institutions. So, so let, let's move on to that. So your view, whereas we have 
the efficiency view saying we have these market failures which the institution of the guild um, arises to correct. Your view, as I understand it, is very much more that guilds should be seen as something closer to rent-seeking institutions, which were actually seeking privileges for the members that were exclusive, and that rather than solving a market failure, in essence, they create a different sort of failure, which is that certain people are excluded from markets, there's a lack of competition, that you actually don't get the quality control or uh, professional certification um, that you might otherwise have got from perhaps some uh, some alternative kind of institution. Is that a fair summary of your view? Yeah, I think that's, in fact, that's a wonderful summary of my view. But I think if I could just go in a little bit further yeah. to explain how this helps us to explain why these on, you know, on balance, probably harmful institutions existed so widely for so long. I think what you have to bring into this is the way in which politics and the state worked in medieval and early modern Europe, and indeed in, in many mm -hmm. other parts of the world. I think once we know more about Chinese guilds or Indian guilds, yeah. um, there are interesting hints already in that literature that the relationship between occupational associations and the political authorities was not dissimilar to that which we observe in Europe. So it's a, it's a two-way it it's a two-way flow of services yeah. because um, states, the emergent states of the medieval late medieval period and the early modern period in Europe faced a lot of challenges. They needed to raise funds. They often needed to engage in increasingly expensive wars. And they sought either tax revenues or loans to enable them to overcome the, the, the crises that they were always mm -hmm. facing. And we know now, looking in retrospect, that you, you can solve these problems for the political authorities by having a generalized tax system, which basically taxes everyone, but doesn't grant privileges to special interest mm -hmm. groups or doesn't do it too much. And that in crises, the government can turn to the private capital market and borrow money and mm -hmm. issue government bonds. But that was a solution which only began to emerge in really after about 1600 in certain parts of Europe. Yeah. In most of Europe in the medieval period, all of Europe in the medieval period, and much of Europe even after 1600, mm -hmm. the other solution was a much more particularized corporatist solution whereby the state hadn't developed a good fiscal system. The um, private capital markets were underdeveloped, and so when the crown or the local government faced a crisis, they turned to the local groups of businessmen, i.e. organized mm. into guilds, and said, you know, we'll grant you a set of privileges to regulate your market, or we'll reconfirm your privileges, or we'll maintain them and enforce them, in exchange for which you will uh, either give us direct cash payments, um, or you'll share your revenues with us, or you will pay us a tax every year, or you'll provide conscripts for the army, or you'll make um, loans, in quotation marks, which basically meant favorable loans, i.e. ones you don't have to pay back. And so, you know, in many parts of uh, German-speaking Central Europe, in Iberia, in Eastern Central Europe, in Scandinavia, you've got this increasingly malignant cooperation between occupational associations such as both merchant guilds and craft guilds and the political authorities. And it's that 
which keeps the guilds in place for as long as they are. So it's in a way, it's it's part of a class of theories of institutions mm-hmm. which has increasingly emerged um, in the last 10 years among economists and economic historians, okay. which focuses on the distributional power yes. of certain institutions rather than their mm-hmm. efficiency. So guilds existed yep. not because they were efficient for the whole economy, for everyone, mm-hmm. but they were very effective ways of channeling more rents to small businessmen and the political authorities at the expense of everyone. So this is about saying that guilds are about sort of distributional matters or they're potentially institutions that are quite conflictual in terms of grappling over a part of the pie rather than actually necessarily thinking about how you increase the the size of the overall pie. Exactly. So an efficiency theory would say this institution makes the pie bigger. A distributional conflict theory of institutions would say this institution enables a couple of powerful groups to get bigger slices for themselves, even if it involves the pie either staying the same size or even being smaller. Before we go into the specific mechanisms through which Gill's perhaps brought about that kind of outcome, I wonder whether you can say a little bit more about um, the role of the state in your particular theory or the role of political authorities, because some of the work in this area that's focused on Gill's from a more a rosier viewpoint often depicts them as kind of bottom-up private order institutions that arise spontaneously to solve an inefficiency problem in a market. Whereas your view is suggesting that these institutions were embedded in political structures of power and authority, which were used for these distributional purposes. So can you say a little bit about the the debate that you're engaging with there, you know, why do some people hold to the view that they are these kind of bottom-up institutions, whereas you have a rather more, a a very different sort of take on what these organisations were actually doing? Well, I think that there was, there is, as I mentioned earlier, I think there is a sort of romantic, sort of optimistic, rosy view of guilds, because nowadays, of course, guilds are voluntary associations. Uh, And because in the English-speaking world, well, in North America, there's never been guilds, and in and England, in England, the guilds had sufficiently weakened by the time that Britain got its colonies that it didn't export them. Unlike Spain, which exported massively its consulados overseas, so I think in English we almost don't have an association in our minds with the old, you know, with the old coercive guilds. We just mm-hmm. think of them as being spontaneous. Mm-hmm. voluntary institutions. But it's true that there is a sort of romantic view of guilds, which is that it just involved a bunch of producers voluntarily getting together and um, and voluntarily acting in certain ways. And it's not until you try to trace the origins of guilds back as far as the documents take you that you realize that there's actually as good as zero evidence mm-hmm. of the guilds as being voluntary. The first time you see any guild, it's because it has applied, it's petitioned for um, government recognition. Mm-hmm. So I think there is a sort of pre-guild mm-hmm. where, and in fact, I observed this in this remote valley in the Northern Black Forest um, in the 16th century. These, um, this new, uh, this new industry had come to this forested hilly area. 
all of a sudden peasants and women and people of other crafts were all, you know, engaged in these new activities. And then a bunch of the existing weavers who had also moved over into it thought, this is a free-for-all, this is completely unacceptable. So they actually went from door to door in the villages collecting money from the existing weavers so that they could then go to the capital city, Stuttgart, and lobby, and they spent six years lobbying the, the princely mm -hmm. chancellery so that they would get an ordinance saying, you're not allowed to do this if you're female, if you're a peasant. You could only do it if you are either an existing weaver or you go through a three-year apprenticeship. So you actually see the formation of the guild. There is a sort of pre-guild, which mm -hmm. is a bunch of guys going from door to door trying yep. to get enough money, but it takes six years to lobby the state and, and I mean, transfer, you know, bribes and they call them honoraria to the, to the, the and they wrote them down in their, in their account book, which is why I know about them. And I think if you look back into the 12th to 13th century in the Italian cities or in the South Netherlanders, the Flemish cities, where you also see guilds emerging, you also get hints that there is a maybe a sort of pre-guild or proto-guild where a bunch of guys, it is usually guys, there are relatively few females in guilds. About 99.6% of guilds did not let women in. Um, <laughs> so, um, I mean, there were a few women's guilds. I counted 55 in the entire history of Europe in over 900 years. So they did exist. They were really interesting organizations, but they were so incredibly exceptional yeah. that when I say a bunch of guys get together, yeah. it usually is a bunch of guys. And that's what you see in Genoa or in some of the South in the Flemish cities in the 13th century, you see hints that the existing producers are getting together, there, or in, in um, 13th century Paris, the existing producers are getting together, and often in their first petition, they will say, you know, a lot of unregulated people have been trying to produce whatever it is, you know, and this has been very damaging to the public well-being, and even women have been doing it, and even <laughs> Jews, and we, you know, everyone knows it's bad that women and Jews should be allowed to do honorable occupations, and so, um, you know, we are petitioning for the state to recognize that we have formed a guild, and we will decide who is allowed to participate in this occupation, and that's the first time you see virtually all guilds and that's why I think you know you you go in and you think they are portrayed as being voluntary associations but when the first time you see them they're already embedding themselves into public order and institutions power, yes exactly yeah. then you know I don't think they're public order institutions because mm -hmm. they're not yeah. run by the state yeah. but they're kind of hybrid between private and public order in the sense well that, I think yeah. in your, your your first book I think you use the term state corporativism so I mean would you describe them as corporatist institutions they're somewhere they're a kind of negotiation between a semi-private organization and the state is that the sort of organization that you see them as I think so I think that they it's a there's by the time we can observe what they're doing they're they are a manifestation of state corporatism. Perhaps a pure corporate group, you might say, was 
a completely voluntary yep. informal one. Yep. But as I say, we seldom see those. They're yep. they're a very very you know minority um, thing. And you know the most famous social scientist who ever wrote about corporate groups, Otto von Gierke, in nineteenth century Germany, was he he did have a romantic view of guilds, but a lot of when you read his book it's very clear that guilds and communities and other these other associations they are integrated into public order institutions in the way that we've been talking about okay so i wonder given that you subscribe more to effectively this view of guilds which is seeing them as rent seeking organizations or privilege seeking organizations as opposed to efficiency enhancing organizations could you give a bit of a brief description about the ways in which you see guilds as reducing efficiency. So what what were the kind of mechanisms or processes that meant that you actually had less economic growth or less efficient outcomes than would otherwise have been the case? So there are two main um, groups of things that guilds did, each of which has effects on economic efficiency and economic growth. The first one is simply imposing and enforcing entry barriers. Mm. So restricting the number of producers in a particular occupation. Um, and sometimes guilds actually, a guild would actually say that it had a numerous clauses. So there was a, a maximum number of producers beyond which it wouldn't let anyone in. That, you still, you go and you see that from the very early, earliest guilds in, in, that are observable in the 12th or 13th century right up to the 19th century. But more frequently, what guilds wanted to do was not to have a, a strict maximum number, but rather to be able to decide who could become a member and who couldn't, partly because a lot of guilds' revenues came from selling admission. So the you had to pay, even if you qualified under all headings. So yeah. you had you were male, you were not a Jew. It was if it was a Catholic area of Europe, you were a Catholic, and if you were Protestant, mm -hmm. it was a you, you were a Protestant. You didn't have the wrong color of skin because most guilds um, in sort of ethnically mixed areas of Europe had very clear definitions that, you so know... ethnically homogenous. You, yeah, I mean, yeah. if you were in Iberia, Spain, or Portugal, um, you know, 7 to 10 percent of the, of the population of most uh, Spanish and Portuguese cities was of either African or Moorish, i.e. Arabic, yep. extraction, they were they and all their descendants were excluded from guilds. And you, you have these very detailed descriptions that anyone whose skin is of the color of quince marmalade or darker will not be allowed into the Seville Cobblers Guild. Mm -hmm. So you have, uh, you know, skin color in Central and Eastern Europe where there are a lot of Slavs or Magyars living side by side with Germans. The German guilds, but basically exclude. all the guilds exclude them. Yeah. Uh, in all over Europe, guilds excluded Jews. Um, so there were all of these sort of identity-based yep, um, forms of exclusion. Forms of exclusion. You had to have local citizenship rights, and citizenship in those days was not like it is now, where most mostly, if you live in a country, you have national citizenship. It was community-based, and on average. Um, I, I calculated from a big sample of, of medieval and early modern European cities, on average, only about 37% of the inhabitants of any European city, on average, mm -hmm. 
held these citizenship rights. So the other 73% on principle could not get into guilt. So there were, you know, there were precursor privileges that you had to get in order to join a guild. And then there were the entry fees. And so, you know, the, you had to pay often minimum apprenticeship fees that could amount to on average 300 days earnings for a, Mm -hmm. for an ordinary worker. Then you had to pay mastership admission fees, which on average from a sample that I had of about 11 hundred observations for different European guilds um, amounted to, on average, about 276 days earnings per So these are actually quite extractive institutions. They're very expensive to get into. Like, you shouldn't think of guilds as being like labor unions. They were like um, they were from like reasonably well-off middle-class boys in a way. Um, So they were um, they, they were in fact, they were organizations of small business owners, and they one of the things they did, as I'll, I'll describe in a moment, was, of course, they used their power, their market power, to exploit their own employees. So they were the exact opposite of unions. Mm-hmm. They were more like employees, employers' organizations. So anyway, these entry barriers, which were based partly on identity and partly on the ability to pay to get in, were ways of restricting the number of people who could Mm. become a member of the guild and hence produce those particular things in a particular place. That in itself tends to push up prices and reduce supplies. I mean, we know that when you reduce supplies, the price will tend to rise. And then on top of that, quite apart from the entry barriers, guilds then regulated the business activities of their members. So they often engaged in either very open price fixing or tacit price fixing, because even in those days, it was not a good look. It wasn't great PR to be seen to be fixing bread prices Mm -hmm. or or Mm -hmm. cloth prices. So often they would engage in quasi-secret price fixing. Mm -hmm. Uh, They would meet in some London church. So they're part of a network almost sort of that might might have been operating. Yeah, they were like a little cartel. Um, They tended to place a ceiling on the amount of output that each master could produce. So each master was restricted to one workshop or one shop. He was had a certain amount of maximum amount of equipment, so like one loom. He yeah. could employ one journeyman and one apprentice. Um, you know, often a weaver's guild would have a particular quota of cloths that a weaver could produce every year. So my weavers in this valley in the Black Forest were technically capable of producing 200 cloths a year. But by 1611, they were being restricted to 50 cloths a year, so Mm. a quarter of what they were technically able to produce. Um, And uh, one of the things that I did for the book was I actually put together a big database of about 17,000 observations Mm. of guilds in 23 European societies over 900 years. And that enabled me to assemble the findings on the output restrictions and price Um, fixing that many different guilds engaged in so that I could kind Mm -hmm. of estimate how how much the average on average guilds restricted output when you can observe output quotas it looks as if the average output quota of a guild was about 44 percent of the technically feasible level of production so by restricting Mm -hmm. output you can push prices up and I also analyze all the examples where you've got 
a guild price alongside the price of a non-gilded competitor producing the same goods and services. And the, the median price increase of the guild over the non-gilded competitors was about 27%, which interestingly is very, very close to that which emerges from modern cartels. Mm -hmm. So in the 20th and 21st century, there are various cartels. They're different from guilds in the sense that mm -hmm. they're usually illegal rather yep. than guilds being legal. Yep. But most cartels uh, manage to increase prices over the competitive level, and the median price increase is about 25%. So it's, I mean, I don't know if that's coincidental, but well, that, that was one, another way in which guilds made the economy smaller than it otherwise would have was by, over, by, by charging prices above the competitive level. Let, let me just follow on the, up on this a little bit and go back to one of the, the earlier questions that I raised. Uh, I mean, reading the book and, and also listening to your account just now, this is really quite, in many ways, a damning indictment of these institutions, you know, that they really are as evidence of rent-seeking, the scale of these markups, in effect, is a, a level where, you know, how could anybody, certainly looking through today's lens, think that uh, they might have any beneficial properties, given the nature of this sort of extraction? I guess the contrary view is going to be, or from the kind of people who make the, the efficiency argument, would be, okay, um, looked at from today's point of view, these would be inefficient practices. But if you look in the context of the time, uh, what was the alternative to providing the kind of mechanisms that might address the market failures that we were referring to? So the price, the 25% markup, might be what you had to pay to overcome uh, the inefficiency. And that really raises the question of, were there any alternatives to guilds at the time that might credibly have addressed those kind of um, market inefficiencies or, or problems that the guilds were supposed to be addressing. Now, you hinted out there that you looked at non-gilded trades. Have you got in the book sort of comparative evidence to look at whether there were alternatives to guilds that were actually crowded out by the actions of the guilds with the political authorities? That's a really, really key question a key consideration when you're evaluating institutions is what's the available alternative? Because yep. maybe, maybe despite all the bad things guilds did, they were nonetheless the only thing that was available to even, you know, maybe we wouldn't have had markets at all. Yep. Maybe you had to have all of these market distortions, but at least you had some markets. Yep. And maybe markets would have collapsed completely yep. without these guilds. And so that's something which I look at really um, in detail in each of the chapters where I try to evaluate what guilds did with respect to quality control, what they did with respect to human capital investment, and what they did with respect to, techno to technological innovations. Because um, it's really important to know what, what, what else was available at the time. Yeah. And actually, for me, that was a learning experience because um, I discovered all sorts of very lively and quite strong institutions in medieval and early modern European society that I had no idea existed. So for instance, um, one of the things that I think we think of with guilds is that guilds are almost synonymous with apprenticeship. If you mm -hmm. think of apprenticeship, you think, oh yes, it took place within guilds. Yeah, that's what I would think of. Yeah, a guild is and that's what I thought that's of, and I had studied guilds. Yeah. But 
Uh, but when once I started assembling these hundreds of observations of different guilds all over Europe, I realized that there were a lot, a very, very large number of apprenticeships taking place outside the guild framework. And there were lots of guilds that didn't require apprenticeship, which was the... Mm. So there's a lot of apprenticeship without guilds, and yeah. there's a lot of guilds without apprenticeship, yeah. which so they weren't doing the things they were suggested to, be doing. to me that, one, that you know, an efficiency theory of guilds which focused on guilds being necessary for apprenticeship... Mm. They were neither necessary nor sufficient. So what you see is, and you know, you might say, well, maybe this only happened in the later era in modern economies like England and the Netherlands, which were the miracle economies of early modern Europe. So maybe you could get away from um, having guilds to regulate apprenticeships yep. in those advanced economies, but maybe you needed to have it in more backward economies or in the, the, the medieval period. What amazed me was that, again, these, uh, these wonderful studies that have been done of the earliest surviving apprenticeship contracts in Genoa or in the Flemish cities in the 13th and 14th centuries, what you have are uh, notarial contracts. So private people took their contract to a notary. So the notarial system was a way of, like, registering, publicly registering an agreement in front of a trained sort of literate legal professional. He would draw up the contract, he would store that contract, and he would certify that it was, it had been voluntarily signed by all signatories mm -hmm. in a court of law if needed. And so that was what you did. If you in Genoa or in the South Flemish, in the Flemish cities in the 13th century, you, you were a parent, or, and you took your um, your daughter or son to uh, and agreed with a master that the master would train your child, your your teenager usually, um, and you would lay down all sorts of very very clear prescriptions that the master would provide appropriate training, or uh, he would have to post a bond. And he'd lose the bond if he didn't provide appropriate training. And similarly, the apprentice would have to learn and work and serve in an obedient way and not abscond once he or she had learned the skills, which is the other kind of opportunism that we think might plague a master-apprentice relationship. So you've got a very clear recognition that opportunism is possible. We're, everybody's going to write a contract, you go to a notary and you sign it, and you say anyone who breaks this forfeits their bond and gets and the contract gets taken to the town court or the princely court to have it enforced. So as early as the 13th century, the earliest surviving apprenticeship contracts actually predate the existence of guilds in the occupations mm -hmm. in which the young people are being trained. And you've got all of these very clever contractual mechanisms being written into contracts in front of notaries. Uh, in Northern Europe, it was more often in front of municipal offices. So the notarial system is more of a South European thing. And Northern Europe tended to have sort of town offices that did the same thing. You've got um, city-states like Venice uh, saying that all uh, apprenticeship contracts, whether guild ones or non-guild ones, have to be registered in front of a, a court called the Justicia Vecchia, mm -hmm. which, and basically, um, you know, anyone who violates these private or, or guild apprenticeship contracts gets hauled before this court. 
Uh, the Lord Mayor's Court in London does the same thing. And uh, there's some amazing work, uh, which Patrick Wallace here in, in London has done on guilds, suggesting that six to eight percent of London apprentices are uh, bringing their masters before the Lord Mayor's Court in the seventh. 17th century. So these public courts were so really being mechanisms. used to yep. deal with this market failure, yep. potential market failure. You have quasi-private business legal mechanisms, the notarial system, you've got municipal offices, you've got these sort of public courts, you've got to actually a multiplicity of alternative solutions. So you don't need guilds, on your view, or didn't need guilds to address the kind of the training type dimension. What about information asymmetries, the kind of quality control information asymmetry type, type argument? Did you find evidence of alternative that, mechanisms to deal with that aspect? That was also fascinating to me because I had no idea how far back, especially town, um, uh, municipal organized sort of mechanisms went for dealing with the problem of it's only particular goods and services yeah. where there's a real information asymmetry problem. A lot of goods and services you can kind of just tell by looking at or feeling something, you know, whether it's it's good or not. But there are some things where the consumer can't know. And interestingly, it's actually 13th century Spain where you begin to see uh, municipal or in some cases princely courts being set up to deal with quality issues and they actually say because it is well known that a, you know, a guild, an occupational association, they have the wrong incentives. They're always going to find in favor of their own producers. Members. We need to take quality control away from the guild and put it in the safe hands of the public organizations. Now I'm not sure that the, that the municipal um, sort of quality um, inspections, you know, there was room for corruption there as yeah. well. You know, we shouldn't romanticize yeah. the public authorities any more than we should romanticize, you know, the 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 guilds. Uh, the guilds. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, an association of producers really does have some bad incentives when it mm -hmm. comes to, you know, dealing with a complaint against, mm -hmm. like, you're a guild inspector, Someone accuses one of your fellow masters of having done something wrong. He might be a really powerful fellow master. Even if he isn't, you're going to worry about finding against him. And in fact, again, to, to go back to my, my little guild in the Northern Black Forest, I actually have um, guild cloth inspectors asking to be released from the inspectorship because you know, but if you find against your fellow masters, you incur much resentment. So it's very, you know, they themselves recognize yeah. that it's it's actually quite difficult to be to to not decide a little bit in favor of of you know the other masters mm -hmm. against customers. Um, the other thing which intrigued me was that you observe some really successful, high quality export industries um, in Europe that function virtually without any quality control. So there's a wonderful study by um, a, a, a very good young economic historian in Padua called Andrea Caracauzzi looking at the wool and worsted weavers guild in Padua um, in the 16th through to the 18th century. 
the Padua wool industry was fantastically high quality, fantastically successful. It sold all over the Mediterranean into the Near mm-hmm. East. Um, it did have a guild. Well, it, it did have a guild. It was a fairly inactive guild that didn't even have apprenticeship requirements. Certainly didn't have any quality inspections. And uh, and nonetheless, it was a very successful. It was dealing with customers in the Eastern Mediterranean that really there would have been the potential for an information asymmetry. And I remember asking Andrea, well, how did it do it without guild quality Mm. controls? And I think his answer was they knew they would lose customers if they produced, Mm. you know, if they exported even one shipment of really bad uh, cloths. So the reputational mechanism. The reputation mechanism. And the other thing was, I think they marked, he said, you know, the other thing about, um, guild cloth seals is that they were very easily counterfeited. So, um, you know, and in that sense, if you could counterfeit a guild seal, then it's almost worse than having no guild seal at all because the customers will believe the counterfeit seal mm-hmm. and, and really be defrauded. So um, it, it apparently it looked, I mean, there, there were certainly very many examples like the Padua wool industry where you have extremely successful export industries that functioned purely on the basis of reputation, which is kind of amazing because we do think that there's this potential for a market to break down without some sort of quality certification. But apparently there were some where it was possible for the producers to actually sustain it on the basis of, of the reputation of a particular firm. A particular producer. The other thing I think that one notices is that long-distance merchants did their own quality inspections at the point of purchase. And so you often get merchants saying, um, we don't pay any attention to guild quality seals because they're completely inadequate for our purposes. We inspect again when we buy it. Because we know that if we sell in a distant market and we've sold something really bad, our business will suffer. Mm-hmm. So I think I think this idea of a merchant firm's reputation seems to have played a big role on export markets, but a, a more favorable one than the guild sale. Those examples that you're giving of, um, if you like, non-guild mechanisms for tackling market failures... Um, I find them quite convincing, and I think they, they they come across very well in the book. Where I'm 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 less sure, and this this relates to a conversation I had with um, Barry Weingast uh, before before Christmas. He did a podcast with us, is about understanding the options that might have been available for states. So his argument is, yes, many of these kind of restrictions looked at through today's lens. Um, we would see them as inefficient. We would want to get rid of them. But you have a slightly different take on them if you recognise that the alternative might not be a free market type situation. It might actually be one where, you know, to go back to a phrase I think you used earlier yourself, you don't have a market at all because you have societies that in many uh, circumstances are basically embroiled in violence of various kinds. And the various restrictions and privileges are a way to at least provide some kind of rudiments of peace and order in a context where the alternative would be something worse than that. So that once you factor in this kind of, I guess, pacifying role at a certain level, you could then see another kind of efficiency explanation for why some of these structures might exist. 
Does your analysis have any relevance to that? I mean, do you see uh, cases where, you know, states seem to be able to avoid violence or whatever without necessarily having guild privileges or some of these other kind of distributional deals done with these kind of associations? Or is that not quite the, the sort of, is this the wrong period to be looking for those sorts of things? I think maybe it's... I think that that's a really important question, but it's much more relevant to merch long dis- guilds of long distance merchants yeah. than it is to these you know small businessmen, yeah. the guilds that are looked at in this book, yeah. in the sense that um, where violence still seems to be a problem um, is in when a, a trader is trying to trade in the realm of. Uh, a state which is not his own state. So how do you, as a long-distance trader, persuade a distant prince, um, you know, someone in Constantinople or someone in northern Africa or or someone in Novgorod to uh, guarantee your property rights over your wares? Not just to take them. Yeah, not just to take them. And to enforce your contracts with the people you're trying to buy and sell with. And that was actually one of the arguments for why guilds of long-distance traders might have been needed at the very beginning of the commercial revolution, um, which, you know, the growth of trade after the end of the of the Dark Ages or the, yep. the sort of early medieval period. Um, and there, you know, there are various e- economists have put forward models of how maybe guilds of uh, long-distance traders were ways of negotiate. You know, they played a role in negotiating with foreign monarchs or foreign rulers in such a way as to guarantee, um, you know, more peaceful interactions. Mm-hmm. And certainly, when you see uh, the first set of merchants turning up in a foreign trading center, they are often negotiating for safe conducts and privileges. Yeah. The interesting thing is that, of course, you, you see that even if they turn up as a single merchant. So the very first thing you do as a merchant is that you go to the most powerful guy and you say, um, please give me a safe conduct and I'll pay you something. So that was certainly something which long-distance merchants did as individuals as well yeah. as, as guilds. Um, there, there is an argument that you know maybe it was easier um, for a group of merchants to negotiate for safe conducts with foreign rulers. Um, there, you really have to look at the balance of violence that's going on because um, merchant guilds never stopped at just asking for safe conduct. They also asked for monopolistic privileges or, you know, so they went far beyond simply asking to, you know, not to be have their things confiscated. Mm -hmm. They, you know, they immediately tried to tilt the the playing field in their own direction. And when they couldn't get it, they used their guild organizations to attack other merchants. And so, you know, even in, you know, 12th or 13th century Constantinople, Mm -hmm. you've got thousands of members of Italian merchant, of the different Italian merchant guilds fighting each other in the streets of Constantinople, uh, you know, killing each other, confiscating each other's wares, um, you know, causing violence to... So they could actually be a source of violence. They were a source of violence as well. Often, you know, merchant guilds either employed corsairs or, you know, there was a very fluid line between 
uh, you know, a, a peaceful merchant and a corsair. You know, you're you're mm-hmm. sailing along and you're a merchant, but you know, you yeah. see a you see a ship belonging to a rival city and you roll out the cannon, as it were. So, um, you know, again, you need to do a cost-benefit analysis and figure out whether you're getting uh, more. You're getting a lot of violence being produced by merchant guilds. Are they also managing to suppress? some violence that might otherwise have happened yeah. and you know uh, there there's a, a, a it's obviously you're looking back at a very very early time so you're having to piece together little bits of evidence in my 2011 book i came to the conclusion that um, merchants were merchant guilds were producing at least as much violence as they were they were they were addressing and i think a really nice really nice test case is the Champagne Fairs. So the Fairs of Champagne were a set of uh, international trade fairs that took place in the county of what is now Champagne Mm -hmm. in France, but it was an independent principality. And in the 13th century, it was the undisputed fulcrum of trade in Europe. That was where the Mediterranean merchants met the North Sea merchants and and the Hanseatic merchants. You get goods from the Mediterranean being traded with primary products from the Baltic and wool from England and so on. And the interesting thing is that merchant guilds are very, very invisible and inactive at those fairs. And the reason is that the Counts of Champagne, i.e. the ruler, guarantees the property rights and contracts of all the merchants who come to my fairs Mm -hmm. and anyone who attacks a merchant traveling to the champagne fairs the count of champagne sends out his soldiers to hunt them down Mm -hmm. and and you know rescue the merchants or rescue the, the the goods of the merchants so as early as the 13th century you at least have some rulers in europe that perceive that they can be, they can become very rich, and indeed the council by providing a more open market by providing generalized yeah. property rights and contract enforcement to everyone, hmm. and not just to the guild just members. you know not tilting the playing field, not selling privileges mm-hmm. to particular guilds. The reason the council of Champagne could do that was that they the four towns in which the fairs took place didn't really have important merchants in them, so there wasn't a domestic lobbying group asking for special privileges, the Counts of Champagne could be sort of Olympian about it mm-hmm. and say, all foreign merchants can come. We're not going to impose, you know, grant any privileges. And the interesting thing is that the fairs of Champagne decline in the 1290s when they get when Champagne gets taken over by the King of France, who immediately starts granting privileges to okay. some groups and confiscating the wares of other groups like the Flemish merchants because he's at war with Flanders. So, you know, it's it I think if it's if it's already possible to offer generalized peace in the 13th century, then it wasn't techni- it wasn't technically impossible to do that to do that at that yeah. era. Okay, I wonder if we could move on to think about why guild institutions declined. Um, so as I understand your argument for why they persisted for so long, it's basically something like um, a kind of public choice rent-seeking argument, which is saying that you've got relatively small organised groups, their organisation in a sense is being facilitated by public authorities through these corporatist deals. They gain privileges which are inefficient from a broader perspective, but the reason why you don't have 
the people who would be the beneficiaries of efficiency gains sort of challenging that is either because they are people who are politically disenfranchised, they don't have access to the state authorities, or it's also because perhaps they face a huge collective action problem, that the, the losses are dispersed across hundreds of thousands of people who are the consumers of these products, and they don't organise effectively because there are so many of them. Now, if you take that kind of explanation, it kind of implies that those privileges would be very hard to break down because you've got very strong groups that want to keep them in place and the people who would benefit from getting rid of them aren't really in a position to do so. So that begs the question of how do you ever get out of this inefficient equilibrium situation? So what is your explanation of how that process um, arises? That's a really key question, and I think economists and economic historians and other social scientists are kind of grappling with it now because you see it, the question gets posed in the, uh, the framework of 19th century American economic history. Naomi Lamoureux, for instance, uh, who's visiting Cambridge this year, has yep. been sort of grappling with how, how do you get from the bad equilibrium to the good one? You see it in developing economies as well. Um, some developing economies have managed to make the transition. Others are still locked in the old corporatist, state corporatist equilibrium. They're, they're, I think that that's the, that's the sort of frontier of research at the moment. At the end of the book, I try to identify some descriptive characteristics of those countries that did manage to break three, free earlier in Europe. So I mentioned earlier that first the southern Netherlands, then in the late 15th, early 16th century, then the northern Netherlands, what, what is now the Netherlands, yeah. um, in the Dutch Golden Age from, you know, 1560 to about 1670 or 1700, and then England, were the miracle economies of pre-industrial Europe. So long before the Industrial Revolution started, you begin to see sustained economic growth, mm -hmm. at least a lot of economic growth in these societies. And the question, and you also see guilds either breaking down or at least becoming a lot less coercive, a lot like they stop enforcing their entry barriers or they only exist in certain places like England, basically London and the old borough towns. There were lots of towns and rural areas with industries that then the new towns that, that of the Industrial Revolution, Birmingham, Sheffield and mm -hmm. so on, didn't have guilds. In the northern Netherlands, you have a lot of towns that didn't have guilds or you have whole industries like the textile industry of Leiden was basically ungilded. London had this unique guild system where um, once you became a member of any London guild, you were allowed to practice any occupation. So this was this was just taken for granted in London by probably 1500. Yeah. Guilds everywhere else in Europe would look at it and think, what? What kind of guild system is this? Because that sort of fluidity, the you know, getting access to some cheap guild and then being able to, you know, become an instrument maker or anything you want would not be possible under other guild systems. So the question is, why did these North Sea economies, why England, Belgium, the Netherlands, why did they break away from this state corporatist mm -hmm. equilibrium, whereas German-speaking Central Europe, Iberia, Scandinavia, Eastern Central Europe, even France until the mm -hmm. revolution, maintained this, this, this 
you know, malignant yeah. equilibrium. And the, you know, there are a bunch of things which I can say happened in the northwest corner of Europe and didn't happen in the mm. others. Why, you know, the underlying causes of yeah. that are, I think, you know, the avenues for future research. So you've got stronger parliaments, stronger representative institutions in the Netherlands and England. That's one component. But of course, parliaments can do bad things as well as mm. good ones. So, you know, the Polish parliament was really strong, but what it did was to enforce serfdom. The Württemberg parliament of the area of Germany I studied was really strong. What it did was to enforce guild privileges. So, you know, it isn't enough to say you've got a strong parliament that can, can you know, place restrictions on what the crown can do. You also have to have what are the mechanisms by which you get into parliament? Why does parliament take good decisions rather than bad ones? Having a very competitive urban system. So towns that did not collude with one another to try to maintain guild privileges, but instead competed with one another. Mm. Um, England has this very long coastline. It's very competitive urban system. The Netherlands, of course, you've got all these towns side by side that are not separate city-states. So there's always like intersecting rural hinterlands where stuff can happen that neither set of guilds like. So the, the towns competing with one another is really important. Having a quite a variegated social structure. So you've got entrepreneurial rural people who want to engage in craft, proto-industries, cottage mm -hmm. industry, export industries. Um, you've got rural traders. You've got um, the members of the gentry and aristocracy who want to engage in trade and don't want to have to enjoy, join the, these guilds. So having that sort of very variegated social structure where have it, being entrepreneurial in industry and trade is not dishonorable for a member of the aristocracy and it's open to people in the countryside, puts a lot of pressure on guilds. Having institutional enclaves inside cities where which, the so-called liberties of London, mm -hmm. where guild regulation did not run. You had them in some parts of Europe, these sort of little enclaves, these liberties where people could behave in a really entrepreneurial way and the guilds couldn't stop them. So most of the English textile machinery in France in the 18th century was actually located in these little institutional enclaves. So having, I, I, I don't think any of these things individually would have worked. And then the final thing is a transition to a tax system in which there are relatively few exempt groups, like the aristocracy has to pay taxes. So you've got a very, very broad tax base. You don't have to sell privileges because you're getting a lot of taxes from the whole population. And the other thing that the Netherlands and England develop is a very sophisticated financial system. So the state can borrow from private capital markets, doesn't have to rely on guilds. So having all these things yeah. descriptively seems to be a good thing. But why you get them in some parts of Europe and not in others is the big uh, open question. Well, let, let me ask you a little bit about that. And, and you, I understand it's a very difficult question, but I, I would describe, and I think maybe this is unfair in some ways, the, the explanation you've given there, given all these variegated factors, as a kind of accidental explanation that you get by accident certain factors come together and then we're able to break free of, of, of guilds. And I guess that's not an unsatisfactory explanation in some ways. 
But I was wondering whether you could think about, are there any more positive explanations? So as an alternative type of view, I'm thinking about the kind of argument that uh, Deirdre McCloskey has put forward about why you know we have the Industrial Revolution where we do. And it's an argument which is more of an ideas-based explanation, really saying that at a certain point in time, you have a change in ideas where people embrace um, in a broader intellectual sense, some notion of openness, of innovation, and of wanting that to be open to a broader set of people, rather than something that is more class-based, if you like, or in this case, guild-based. She has a, a, a more ideological interpretation of the factors that can bring about these changes, rather than one that focuses on particular sorts of institutional accidents. I wonder whether you have any sympathy with that kind of view or, or is it just one of the other factors that might come in with all the other institutional ones that you've listed? I think in what you just said, there are two really interesting components and there one is the one is the accidental component yeah. and the other is the cultural component yeah. and in, in fact those are two other really powerful approaches to trying to explain institutions like in some ways institutions can change simply because of historical accident so you can get the accident that north america was basically um discovered or occupied or in you know it yeah. turned turned into part of an english speaking world empire and didn't get guilds and central and southern europe was was you know the imperial power was was either spain or portugal and, and they had them. exported their institutions yeah. so you know the, 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 that sort of accident that that the accident of who invades you and is your imperial yeah. imperial power you can get the you know violent accidents like the French Revolution. Uh, had the French Revolution not happened, I don't think that France would have lost it guilt, its guilds in 1791. Mm -hmm. In okay. fact, France agonized, even the French Revolutionary Government agonized for two years before managing to yeah. abolish the guilds. But once it had abolished its guilds, it then exported this institutional change to all the countries in Europe it invaded and occupied. So Western Germany, the Netherlands, Northern Italy, you see guilds being broken down by the accident of being invaded by France. Prussia gets defeated by France in 1808 and begins to rethink all sorts of old institutions, including guilds and serfdom abolishes guilds and serfdom because we need to beat the French next time. So uh, clearly there is a, a, an important role for accident and then historical path dependency yeah. in how you get institutional change. And I think, you know, that's one reason why economists and all social scientists are paying way more attention to history is if accident matters and then you get a whole set path of events, path of events after that you really need to know what happened in history mm -hmm. so that's yeah. one yeah. way I, I think that is a component of how yeah. we explained an institutional transition and i as you can tell i think that yeah. it's quite important on the culture side, I have to admit to a stubborn old <laughs> Marxist feeling that, you know, culture and ideas, they're superstructure. And then what really matters is the material basis. And, <laughs> and you know, I know, I, I, I think that's going a little bit, you know, that's overstating my view. But I think because, I suppose because most of what I do in my research is that I analyze the behavior of ordinary people, I look at, you know, 
entrepreneurship among the weak and powerless, often the illiterate, the women, the peasants, you know, people who are struggling, Mm. who have no idea what's going on in elite culture. And nonetheless, you see so much sense of entrepreneurship, so much sense that, you know, you've got uh, reading the petitions of ordinary people in medieval and early modern Europe against guilds, women's petitions, illiterate women, they have a very strong vision that they should be entitled to participate mm-hmm. in markets and guilds are bad. So, yeah. you know... So they didn't you, need the ideas coming I'm down f- sh- to them from some... Well, you know... Literary so f- figures or whatever. Well, lit- you know, maybe insofar if liter- literary figures affect the decisions of elites mm-hmm. and... Guilds are being kept in place because of some sense that they're, you know, that, that the elites think they're okay. You know, there might be a sense of legitimacy that comes from these ideas. And maybe, you know, it's, it's possible that there's some undermining of the sense of legitimacy. But, you know, when I see guilds being broken down, I see it happening for very hard-headed political and institutional reasons. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think Deirdre's... Deirdre's analysis of many aspects of this transition is incredibly illuminating and just super fun to read. But I think ultimately... You still need an economic... You need... you Yeah, you need... I, you know, I think ultimately I would say it's institutions and politics and yeah. force and conflict. Yeah. And you can find, you know, you can find dignity and entrepreneurship everywhere as long as you take those institutions away whereas i think she would ascribe much more autonomous power to ideas ideas and you know you know respect where the scholars can differ about things (laughs) i'm happy with that well i'd I'd like to close if, if, if i may just on asking you about a theme that is quite very closely related to some of the issues we're concerned with you in this uh, research center and that's thinking about the relationship between informal and formal um, institutions and how that can sometimes go wrong. So just going back to the beginning of the conversation where you you were mentioning about the kind of rosy view that people sometimes have of certain kinds of communal organisation or guild type structures. Um, And this is very relevant to when people, I know you discuss this yourself, discussions about social capital. Um, There's a tendency to see community that we all value in many ways as providing certain kinds of of services in a singularly romantic view rather than seeing it as something that is often community something that's often very double double double-edged where you can recognize that there's a positive side to traders or other people getting together um, and all the network effects that that generates but at the same time recognize there can be a dark side to it um, that exclusion is often um, the, the flip side of community. Um, and I wonder whether you could just reflect on that, because it seems to me this is a constant tension um, that we face, that we want people to form voluntary groups or associations. We want a rich associational life. But the danger is always there that those associations can move from being Um, these rosy type institutions to flipping over into the dark side and what do we learn institutionally are there any institutional lessons you think about how we can get the good out of community without getting this dark side rearing its head 
Well, I think that I think that is something which one does learn from looking at this 900 history, yeah. 900 year history of European guilds, which is that not everything that guilds did was bad, mm. and certainly not everything that guilds did was good. That networks and sort of organizations, um, especially, I mean, the problem with with social networks is that they can produce much more powerful social capital if they mm. do know who are members and who yeah. aren't. Yeah. And so, you know, it, as soon as you have, you can look at communities and networks and you can say, they're doing all of these great things. Um, states and markets are not perfect. We know there are market mm. failures. We know there are state failures. Mm. Um, romanticizing state capacity, yeah. um, you know, yeah. romanticizing spontaneous order in markets yeah. is also wrong. And I think what we can learn from looking at real functioning communities and, and groups like guilds is that eternal vigilance is necessary. You need to have networks and communities, if only to keep markets and states under control, to have a variegated social structure, to have ways in which ordinary people can organize to call out abuses mm. in the market and to call out abuses in the state. Mm. But that we, we can't romanticize these community or associations or, or networks either. We need to recognize that anything which human being, any organization or institution that human beings create can also can be used for good or it can be used for ill. And I think if you recognize the capacity of guilds and communities and networks to be used for bad purposes, that's the first step to putting checks and balances in place so that the communities and networks you get are ones that do as many good things as possible and as few bad ones as possible. So I think, you know, finding out what really happened with communities is the first step to embedding communities within a wider framework of open access institutions, which I think is actually something, I mean, to end this podcast on a sort of optimistic note, you know, with all of the difficulties and things that one is worried about in modern Western democracies, actually, they may have problems, but they're the best, probably the best way of organizing society that has ever been developed by human beings, which doesn't mean we can't make it better. But I think we have learned how to embed associations and networks and communities in a wider framework of generalized markets and open access states. And eternal vigilance will be necessary. But I think how we got from, you know, the state corporatism dynamic to what or equilibrium to what we have now does have lessons, which is watch out for the dark side of any human institution. Okay, well, on that note, uh, <laughs> I'd like to thank you very much, Sheila, for really a, a, a great conversation and absolutely fantastic book so i thoroughly recommend this book uh to all of our listeners it's called the european guilds and economic analysis and it's out with um princeton university press so please check out sheila's book sheila thank you very much indeed thanks for inviting me thank you